fourth week of this ser series that we're doing through the month of January, um, Pray and Go. Um, if you have not been joining us, I um, hope that you will go back and, and check out on Facebook or through the podcast um, these previous uh, sermons. We've been working our way through um, key passages in the book of John that are sort of around this call from Jesus to pray and then to go. It's almost like when we named the sermon series, we knew what we were going to be doing. So we've been working our way uh, through that. The first week we asked this question of, what's your story? It's this question that's asked of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is asked, what is your story? And his response is not to point to himself or to point to anything about him or how special he was or how much his mama loved him or how he was a miracle baby given by God, but to point to Jesus, to the one that was coming after him. And we said that, that when we are asked what's our story, we should point to Jesus. The second week, we looked at this, at this thing that Jesus says when he says that he is the bread of life. And so we talked about the fact that it is only upon feasting upon that bread of life that we can find satisfaction. That it's only upon eating that bread of life, that sustenance, that nutrient that we can live. Last week, we looked at this phrase of Jesus when he says that he is the resurrection and the life. We looked at the story of Lazarus and how Jesus raised Lazarus to a physical life, but, but he desires to raise us to a, a spiritual life, an eternal life, a life that does not end. So we've seen there, right, we've already seen Two of these I am statements that we see in John, right? I am the bread, and I am the resurrection. And today we look at one more, and it's actually the last in John, the last of these I am statements. We're going to be in John 15, so if you want to go ahead and, and turn with me to John chapter 15. Now, as you read through, if you're reading, um, if you're reading along with the screen, or if you're reading along in the CSB, which is the translation that we use in worship, you're going to see this word remain. But as you're going to see that as I read it, I am going to attempt, every time it comes up, to change that word to the word abide. In a lot of other translations, it doesn't have, this word here isn't remain, it is abide. Now, why are we doing that? Well, remaining is a good word, and abide does mean to remain, but abide means something more than that, doesn't it? It means to sort, of, to sort of be, to rest, to dig in. And we're going to talk about that a, a little bit more. But that word abide is important, I think. And I don't think that remain quite gets it. And so we're going to, as best I can, I'm going to be changing remain to abide. So if you're noticing that difference, that's why. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? John, the Gospel of John, starting in the first verse of chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. 
You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words abide in you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command and abide in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore, because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you my friends, because I have, known, I have, made, I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we come before you this morning to, to read and study your word, I just my prayer is, is that we would abide in you. That we would abide in you this morning. That we would seek to rest and to hear what you have for us. And so God, we, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. I love this, this text of John, John 15. See, it's, it's all about relationship with Jesus, right? And that's, that's what he's talking about. The, the kind of, he's giving us a metaphor to describe the relationship that we are to have with him. It's about love. This I command you, love one another. Greater love has no man than this. Then he lay down his life for his friends. It's about good works, that we will do the things that Jesus has commanded of us. It's about community. It's how we're to relate to one another. And it's also about mission. It's about the fact that God has called us for a purpose. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is, would be a good passage to commit to memory at some point. This first little bit of John chapter 15. You could, you could do worse than to hide the words of John 15 in your heart. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I hope that you will join us as we consider the claims that are made here. Because see, what, what we're looking at is we're looking at this fact that, that true disciples of Jesus, through the true disciples of Jesus, are, are called to abide in an intimate and fruit-producing, life-giving relationship with him, with Jesus. And we, we have challenges. All of us are going to be challenged by this passage. For those, those who are legalists, it, it challenges because it tells us that Christianity is not about our performance, not about how many times we come to church, not about how faithful we are in reading our Bible, but it's about knowing and walking with the person of Christ. You know, it does not matter. It does not matter how many times you sit in a pew or how many times you read Scripture cover to cover or how pure you are or how holy you are. None of that matters if you do not have personal communion with the creator of the universe. Communion, relationship that is only available to us through Christ. Okay? So there's, there's, we have these sort of two trends in the church, right? Sometimes, sometimes there are folks that can go, go legalist, and then there are the folks that can go, let's call it spiritualist, right? They kind of go in the other direction. The, the thing that says that the only thing that matters is me and Jesus. You've probably heard that, right? Well, pastor, I'd be in church on Sunday morning, but, but me and Jesus just have a better relationship when I'm on the back nine. Pastor, I'd, I'd be in church on Sunday, but, but me and Jesus are going to, in normal circumstances, stay home and watch the preacher on TV. Pastor, I'd love to be at church, but, but I find rest for my soul when I'm out on the lake fishing. Jesus called fishermen after all, right? So it's just me and Jesus out catching bass. We've heard, we've heard this, right? You've heard this. They just want to meditate and commune with God, and sometimes they use it as an excuse. But what this text tells us is that true communion, true relationship with God also leads to a transformed and active life with the community of God's people. So it speaks to the legalist who doesn't want it to be about relationship and wants it to be about rules, and it speaks <coughs> excuse me, to the person who just wants it to be about them and Jesus and wants to spiritualize everything and doesn't feel like that that relationship has any import in their day-to-day -day life and how they interact with each other and with other people. But this passage also challenges those who are giving themselves over to, to sin and rebellion. This passage is a warning. God is a righteous judge who will, who will trim the branches, cast them out, and cast them into the fire. But as we so often see in Scripture, there is the, there is the challenge, there is the warning, and the warning is also followed with hope. 
because this passage gives us hope, too. Because it tells us that Jesus is a life-giving Savior for those who repent and believe. I want to look at the text in, in sort of two parts. We're going to look at the first part about the vines and the gardener and the branches, and that's going to be verses 1 through 8. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about this idea of abiding. We're going to, we're going to look at that second part of what we read today. And so as we, as we delve into this, this image, this metaphor of the vine and the gardener and the branches, we need to be aware that Jesus is using an image to help us understand our relationship with him and the Father, right? This is, this is, Jesus is not telling you that you are actually a branch, that you're actually on the vine, right? It's a metaphor. He's trying to tell us something, and he's trying to tell us about how that relationship between us and him and the Father works. And in this metaphor, there are these three main components. There is the vine, us. Now, excuse me, there's the vine, Jesus. There's the gardener, the Father. And there's the branches, us. I apologize. So we're going to take each one of them in turn. But as the metaphor would have us believe, these relationships between these three are intertwined, and they can't fully be separated out. So in verse 1, we hear this, right? I am the true vine, and the Father is the gardener. This is the last of those seven I am statements that we have in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now I am the vine. The true vine. In each of these, Jesus has explicitly identified himself with Israel's God in, in the Old Testament. Because he's used that, that phrase, I am. That is the divine name in the Old Testament. Moses asked the question, who shall I say sends me? I am who I am. Jesus is explicitly linking himself with Israel's God. By saying that I am the true vine, he's not only identifying with the God of Israel, though, he's also identifying with Israel. At several points over the Old Testament, uh, Israel is referred to as God's vine that planted to bear his fruit. Israel was chosen and loved to fulfill God's purpose. From the moment God called Abraham and his family, he said, you will be a blessing to all the people. God chooses a people to fulfill his will and to fulfill his plan and his purpose. But again, notice, Jesus says not that he is the vine, but that he is the true vine. He's placing himself in contrast to a failed vine, to a false vine, the vine of Israel. Because they had failed over and over and over again to do the thing, to be that blessing, to carry the blessing of God to the world. And so Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true vine. Israel was supposed to make God's name great among all the nations. 
they wouldn't even make his name great among themselves. Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. And yet they were a people who walked in darkness. They were supposed to connect the lost peoples of the world with the Creator. But they lost that connection themselves. In Hosea, we see in the first two verses of Hosea chapter 10, we we see this sort of language that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. Israel is a lush vine. It yields fruit for itself. The more his fruit increased, the more he increased the altars. The better his land produced, the better they made the sacred pillars. Their hearts are devious, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and demolish their sacred pillars. Israel was supposed to be a vine that produced fruit for the world, but they produced fruit for themselves. They were supposed to glorify God, but they glorified idols instead. Did you catch that at the end? The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. And so now Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true vine. I am the better Israel. What they are supposed to be doing was really what I'm doing now. What they were supposed to be doing was what John the Baptist did and point to me. They were a failed precursor to the real thing. But I am here. Now, we know Jesus was, is eternal, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Beginning of John. So we had the true vine. And then God comes along and he taps Israel to, to be a vine in the world, and they fail, and now we see the new vine again. It's sort of like that awful progression we had in the 80s of Coca-Cola and New Coke and Coca-Cola. That thing in the middle, it, it was supposed to be a good thing. It was supposed to, to point to the real thing, but it, it failed. It, it was false. It didn't quite cut it. Jesus is the vine, the true vine, the true Israel. And God's plan for salvation for the whole world centers on him and on him alone. And that's why we preach the gospel that we preach. is because it all centers on Jesus. Jesus is the, the hinge of history. Everything moves around him. But it's also why we read the Bible the way that we do. Because if he is the true vine, if he is the real Israel, if he's the the plan for salvation centers on him and him alone, then that means that every word in this book is about him. We use this word, there's a big fancy word that we use sometimes to talk about this. It's this word Christocentric. Have you ever heard that before? So Christo, right, Christ, Jesus. Centric, right, hopefully we're we're awake enough this morning to know what centric is, right? Center. Christocentric. The study of the Bible needs to be 
Christocentric. We need to put Christ at the center. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore the context in the text originally. It doesn't mean that we fail to take into account what the text meant to the original hearers of the text, particularly when we're looking at an Old Testament text. Those things are very important. But we always need to look and see how does the text point to Jesus. One of the things that I really love about the Gospel Project Sunday School curriculum that many of our Sunday School classes use is that it takes as one of its formative pillars this point. That the whole story of Scripture is about Jesus. That the whole story of Scripture is about the Gospel. That everything points to Jesus. Because he is the true vine. Because he is the fulfillment of God's plan and God's promise. So that's the, that's the vine. And there's this, there's this other, there's a second thing, right? There's the gardener. There's, the, there's this image of the gardener. We see it right there in verse 1, what we already read, right? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. The father is the one who, who tends to the vine, The Father is, is the one who, who does the work, the trimming that we're going to see here in just a second. Now, those of you who are gardeners or, or farmers, you are very concerned with what the yield of your crop is, aren't you? Like, there's no point in putting cucumbers in the ground if you don't get cucumbers off the plant. There's no point in putting wheat in the ground if you don't get wheat off the plant. There's no point in putting cotton in the ground unless you get that white fluffy bowl off the plant. So if the father is the gardener, we know that he is extremely concerned about the fruitfulness of the vine because that's what gardeners do and that's what gardeners care about. In verse 2, we see this. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that he will produce more fruit. Now, there is a plan, a bad plan, a half-conceived plan, for me to put a raised bed in the backyard and for us to have a garden this year. And I say it's not a very good plan and it's not a very wise plan because I cannot keep a cactus alive. So I'm going to be really clear here. I want to do this, and I want to learn, but I'm, I'm outside my depth. And so some of you who are gardeners or farmers, you may, you may want to correct me afterwards. But as I understand it, at least with certain plants, once they bud, once they fruit, you've got you've to prune that off. And in that process, you put that energy back into the plant so that it produces more, more fruit or more flowers. Right? Am I, is, am I, Bob, am I close to being correct? Okay. You gotta uh, nip it in the bud. See, regardless of what the state of the branch is, the gardener is going to act to help the vine reach its maximum fruitfulness. That is the gardener's 
concern. We, we skip ahead here to verse 8, and we see this explicitly. My, God, my Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified in this. We glorify God when we produce much fruit. Brothers and sisters, you can come into church and you can sing praises to God all day long. But if you aren't producing fruit in your life, you are not glorifying God. It is vain words. The gardener's goal is to see that his plant, that his vine, produces fruit. The Lord's goal in, in your life and in my life is to have us produce fruit. That's what he's calling us to in this chapter. In John 15, he's calling us to bear fruit. As the Lord looks on those who are in Christ bearing fruit, he is pleased. He is honored. He is glorified. And now we come to that third part of this metaphor, the branches. We come to the weak link, us. In verses 2 through 8, we're, 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 we're seeing that those who are claiming to, claiming, this is an important word here, those who are claiming to be disciples are the branches. That's me and, and many of you. But it also tells us that there are two kinds of branches. There's the branch that bears fruit, and there's the branch that does not. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit. Let's take those in, in reverse order real quick. We see that the, the gardener prunes the branches so that they do bear fruit, right? That's what we just talked about. He wants them to bear even more fruit. You know, they're, 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 they're the things that need to be pruned, that need to be cut back so that energy isn't being put into those things so that the energy can be produced into the fruit. This tells us that if you are a Christian... The Lord is not done with you yet. One of the first sermons I ever preached here was that sermon on the self-growing seed. And we talked about the fact that, that, that we need to keep growing until harvest time. And I'm not ready to be harvested. I hope you're not ready to be harvested yet. We need to keep going because God's not done with us yet. He's still working God wants to continually prune you for his service. Now, pruning can be uncomfortable in our lives, can it? Sometimes we want to hold on to those, to those dead twigs, and we don't want to let them go. Now, sometimes plants self-prune, right? Sometimes something dies, and we just let it drop. But sometimes something dies and it's got to be it's got to be cut out. Brothers and sisters, do not despise the discipline of God pruning. He's not disciplining you because he hates you 
or because he wants something bad for you. He's disciplining you through pruning because he loves you and he wants to use you for his kingdom. We have this idea that discipline is a bad thing. I mean, right, we've even gotten to the point, we've got people, we've got people who refuse to discipline their kids. We've got people who are making arguments that, that any parent who disciplines their child is a tyrant. But those of you who are parents, you, you discipline because you love, right? Because you want to you wanna see them grow and be better. The, the end goal for every parent is to have their kid be better than they are. But, but we have this idea sometimes as adults that we don't want to be disciplined. We're okay maybe disciplining kids, but we don't want to be disciplined. Church discipline has disappeared in this country. You read church minutes from Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches in the 19th century, and church discipline was a real thing. And it wasn't because they wanted to prove how holy they were and remove somebody. It's because they knew that when you're brought under discipline, it helps you to see that you need to improve and correct because it will help you grow so there's the branch that bears fruit but then there's this other branch right that first branch that's mentioned the the branch that does not bear fruit this type is taken away by the gardener verse 6 tells us this if anyone does not abide in me he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned when you, when you trim, when you prune, and you get that, that big pile, it doesn't take long for that big pile to, to dry out, does it? To wither. And then if you've got a burn pile or a burn barrel, it gets consumed pretty quick, doesn't it? When it's that dry. I want to be clear here. This is not talking about a Christian that isn't performing well enough is going to lose their salvation. That's not what this is. Which Jesus is, Jesus is not saying there are two kinds of Christians. The, the pruned fruitful ones and the discarded unfruitful ones. What Jesus is saying is there are fruitful believers and there are false believers. He's saying there's only one kind of Christ follower those who bear the fruit. Someone who claims Jesus and bears no fruit has no reason to believe that they are a Christian. Someone who claims Jesus and bears no fruit is in spiritual danger because the life is not in them. They're not attached to the source of life, which is Jesus. Jesus is talking to the disciples, right? He reminds them, no, they're, you're, they're true believers. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. In verse 3. 
This is where Jesus protects us against thinking that we need to produce fruit in order to save ourselves. He's telling them, he's telling us why they're clean. It's because of his work in their lives, because of his work in our lives. He is the Savior, he is the true vine, and we are to bear the fruit. We must never mistake fruit-bearing with salvation. We bear fruit because of his saving grace, not to earn or secure it. We bear fruit because of his saving grace, not to secure or earn it. I feel like I needed to say that one more time, because I know this is something that a lot of people have a hard time with. Because we live in a world that says that you get because of something that you've done. Because we live in a world that things are transactional. And the love of God is not transactional. We bear fruit because of his saving grace. Not so that we can earn it or secure it. It is a free gift. Some of us, some of you maybe, are trying to produce spiritual fruit in order to earn or gain confidence in your salvation. It's, it's one of the things that we see the most in the church. And I want to remind you not to look at yourself, but at the one whose word makes you clean. Look to Christ, not to yourself. He secured your salvation with his death. And so believe in him and not in yourself. Okay, so if we can't secure it, if we can't earn it, if that's true, which it is, then, then what do we do? Then what's our, what's our role? What's the branch supposed to do? And the branch is supposed to remain. The branch is supposed to abide. Union with Christ is the foundation of communion with Christ. We're to, to remain, to abide, to, to stay, to put down roots, to set up shop, to get comfortable, to hold on and not to let go. And that's why I like abide more than remain here, because I think abide gets to that relationship better than remain. True disciples are, are invited, in fact, commanded to remain in an intimate relationship with Christ. I love this image because it, it shows what I want the Christian life to be about. It explodes what I want the Christian life to be about. It, I want it to be, not be about, I, 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 I want it to be about how good I can be. Right? Because that's something that I've got control over. But this word abide blows all of that up and invites me to exchange my performance, the stuff that I've got control over, for this personal communion with God. 
knowing God, walking with God, resting in God, abiding. This is what Jesus wants from his disciples. And so we're going to move into the, to the, to the second portion real quick, the, the remaining abiding in its, in its fruits. We're, we're to abide in the love of Christ through obedience. There's a parallel here, right, between the Father and the Son and between Christ and his disciples. The Son abides in the Father and the disciples abide in Jesus. We abide in his love by obedience. The Son obeys the Father. The disciple obeys the Master. Obedience is is the context and the setting for enjoying the fullness of Christ's love. I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Are you missing out on experiencing the love of Christ, not because it's not there, but because you are not walking in obedience to his commandments? So many times we can sit there and we can cry out and we can say, I don't know where the love of Christ is. I don't feel the love of Christ all while we are running as far and as quickly in the opposite direction as we can. So I want you to ask yourselves, are you missing out? Not because the love's not there, because the love is there. Are you missing out because you're not walking in obedience? We're also called to abide in in the joy of Christ through that obedience. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We get this twisted sometimes, right? We don't think that we can be joyful by obeying. But in fact, when we obey God, our joy is made complete. We also abide with the body of Christ in love. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Christ has not yet laid his life down for his disciples, but he is about to. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. And then at the very end, in verse 17, as if to, to make sure they heard him the first time, this is what I command you. Not what I ask of you, not what I request of you, not what I think would be really awesome if you did. This is what I command you. Love one another. An essential aspect of our fruitfulness in the gospel is this loving community that we share with Christ's people. And we share it not because it's easy or convenient or perfect or because anyone else has loved you first, because guess what? It's not easy. It's not convenient. It's not perfect. I mean, have any, some of y'all looked in the mirror? You ain't perfect may come as a shock to you. Loving one another isn't easy. It's not convenient. And we don't do it because somebody else has loved us first. It's not a transaction. 
We abide with the body of Christ in love because Christ loved us first. We abide with the body of Christ in love because Christ, because Jesus loved us first. We abide in the grace of Christ on mission. Verse 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I appointed you. He appointed you to go and produce fruit. You received grace. I received grace so that we can proclaim grace. He chose us. He chose us. He graced us so that we can proclaim grace. Disciple-making, evangelism, outreach, whatever you want to call it. It's not a special program for the elite few that have been to some training. Disciple-making is the gracious privilege of the saved masses of each and every one of us. Finally, we abide in the power of Christ through the word and through prayer. Twice um, here, we've, we, we're asked to, we're called to ask the Father. That second part of verse 16, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. You ever wonder why we pray in the name of Jesus? This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. And previously in verse 7, he's, Jesus said this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. There is power in Jesus. There is power in abiding in him. And as we pray, we have the ability to tap into that. And so, brothers and sisters, this... Abide. Abide in the true vine. Be connected and so knit in to Jesus that, that it's hard to tell the difference between you and him. On a really big, healthy plant, can you tell the difference between the vine and the branch? where one starts and where one ends? Because it's all one and the same thing, isn't it? Abide. Consider the privilege that we have as Christ's people to know him intimately, to walk with him daily, and to bear fruit that brings him great glory and great joy. It is not what we do. 
but we're still called to do. And we always need to remember that he has tasked us with proclaiming his grace to others because there are branches that will be cut off and dried out and cast into the fire. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 445, Sweet Hour of Prayer, 445.